0: good afternoon everybody all right wave if you're here awake there you go great great thank you well we are so glad that you are able to join us for this session and I am going to uh, I'm going to be moderating the session for all of us here we would like to try to keep to be on time so um, Let's probably, if somebody could close one of the doors so that we can limit the noise from one side, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. My name is Lydia Kalmer, and I am a national program leader with the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, USA, uh, USDA, so NIFA USDA. And um, I have with me fantastic colleagues that are going to be uh, presenting this skill-building um, session. And uh, to save on our time, because we have a lot to work on later on in this session, uh, we chose to not have long introductions. So as they come in to speak, they will introduce themselves. But for a start, I will just uh, say their names, they will wave, and, yeah, and i now acknowledge from which organization they're from. So in alphabetical order, Ali Kent is with um, the International Rescue Committee. Did you (laughs) wave? All right. Uh, Brianna Buck is with USDA NIFA. Thank you. Uh, Elizabeth Colling is with USDA NIFA. And Eugenia Gusev is with IRC. The International Rescue Committee. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been so much fun planning this. So um, we wanted to crosswalk with for you um, what this session, our agenda versus with the, the um, our ed- session agenda and our objectives. So we have a NIFA background. Um, before the NIFA background, we have some introductions. And we'll show you that. We will use menti.com to, to, to do some introduction of yourselves. And then we will talk about the NIFA background on Community Foods pro, uh, Competitive Grant Program. Um, then we will invite the International Rescue Committee to um, new routes sorry to share some project examples relevant to SNEB and then we will bring you into an interactive skill building activity and there will be some time for Q&A so, uh, as you can see, we are crosswalking that with uh, trying to uh, ensure that you get a deep understanding of the history of the program that we, um, the Community Foods Competitive Grant Program, identifying the role of both government and non-government organizations in implementing nutrition, security, and education programs. And then also identifying the role of community-led projects and the value of sustained, stakeholder collaboration in improving food access and reducing food insecurity for American households. So as I said, we'll start with our mentee question here. So we wanted to know, have you ever participated in a community food projects program? Please go to menti.com, enter that code 98203607 and answer that question for us. All right, I think we have lots of you answered the question. Alex, please. Okay. Wow. All right. Okay. One more. So we have 25 of us to answer the question. And most of us have not applied um, to or participated in a community food Projects program. So that's great news because you ha- you will hear about it today, and hopefully, you will find ways to collaborate with other partners to participate, or you could apply to the program um, if you're eligible. So then we'll go to the next question. That's and those, oh, and we have eight yeses. Oh, 24 noes. Okay. Okay. There's more no's. Okay, and a few more yeses. And those who have applied to the Community Foods Projects, great, Um, and and we will continue to learn more about the program today. The next question is, um, what is is an important element to community building, whether it is that you have applied for the Community Foods Project or not? And again, you go to that, Menti, dot com nine eight two zero three six zero seven and let's see what we come up with. What is an important element to community, to building community. Okay. Sorry Alex, I have to put here to see it. More votes please. All right, I think you can vote twice if you wanted to. All right, I see trust, relationships, collaboration, communication, understanding, listening, diversity, respect, accountability. Oh, these are these are rich. These are really good. And the bigger the word, the more people are putting it in. So that's great. This word cloud is. Okay. I think we hmm. engagement, community voices. And I keep going to the mic because we, we are being recorded as well, just to make sure it's clear for those who are online. So this is great. Thank you so much for participating. We appreciate that. All right. We will hear more about how IRC has used this, um, this uh, trust community building and um, in, their, in their projects uh, over the years, and this will also help us learn more about how we could use that, how different communities uh, respond to these different um, values or elements that we of community building. So next, I will invite my colleague. Is this the time? Yeah. Okay, Beth, to to join us and and do a presentation. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Lydia, and welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us bravely after lunch. I know it can be hard while you're digesting food to also digest information, so we really, really appreciate it. And I don't know, uh, Dr. Comey, did you introduce yourself as the national program leader for this program? She is, So, <laughs> so and you probably did, but it's worth re-mentioning um, that, she, that Lydia is the national program leader for community projects Um, I help support her in that role, I'm in NIFA's awards management division, so we work alongside each other to try to execute these programs uh, to the most efficiency that we we can achieve. Uh, This slide overlaps a little bit with what was presented earlier this morning, so if you were in one of our earlier sessions on the collaboration between WIC and NIFA, you might have seen this image before, but we are the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, we are the lead federal agency in providing extramural funding for agricultural research and science. In FY 2022, which is the most recently completed fiscal year, uh, we executed about 2.2 million billion billion in federal awards, which equ- equates to about 2,500 awards that went through our agency last year. We are in the thick of it for FY 23. Uh, just, just so you know, we are um, working very efficiently uh, with the time that we have. We are embedded in the USDA's research, education, and economics mission area. And we are dedicated, absolutely dedicated, to that that image that you see, research, education, and extension. They're very, very important to us at NIFA. We catalyze transformative discoveries, education, and engagement to address agricultural challenges. But specifically to this deep dive today, we're going to zero in on just one of the programs that NIFA um, has had in its portfolio since even beginning, before NIFA was was NIFA, actually, and the previous iterations of the agency, the Community Foods Project Grant Program. You'll hear me truncate that to CFP. It's a lot easier to say, Um, and it encompasses a lot of what we do. It is a mandatory program authorized by 7 U.S.C. 2034, and it has been in existence since 1996. So I think we should have like a big anniversary party in a few years. Uh, We're gonna come up on 30 years uh, pretty soon of of the CFP program, which is really wonderful to see how it has transformed communities uh, over decades at this point. Overall, the CFP program is intended to bring together stakeholders from distinct parts of the food system to foster understanding of national food security trends and how they might improve local food systems. And you can see up on the slide that there's actually three pieces to this broader program. We offer three different grant types. So there are pilot projects, what we call standard projects, and then there's a very special subgroup of one award that is called our technical assistance and training grant. And that one is is not competed every year. Most recently it was competed in 2022 and it's a single award to help support this community, and I'll explain that here in a little bit. Our planning grants are, are, are just that. They're $35,000, up to $35,000, and they're really intended to help communities get off the ground, get those ideas generated, to start thinking about how they can build these programs in their communities. And when they're ready to take the next step, we have that standard project that follows behind it that's up to $400,000 and will help you launch, launch your work um, to, to its next level. And I'm, I'd love to spend all this time sharing examples. We're so proud of this community and the work that they do. Uh, really excited to share with you today IRC. They're one of many, many grantees that we support um, by providing funding. And um, you'll see here on the next slide, I do believe. Well, let's, go, let's talk about eligible entities first, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about where our grantees are. To be eligible for this, this particular uh, NIFA program, You have to be a public food program service provider, tribal organization, or a private nonprofit entity. That includes gleaners, and then this very long definition (laughs) continues to include non-governmental corporations, trusts, association, or cooperative that is operated primarily for scientific education, service, charitable, or similar purpose in the public sector. That's a really long definition, but uh, we wanted folks to, to be able to look deep into their own organizations to determine if they, they meet this criteria of, of supporting their communities and, and focusing on that education science and, and charitable purpose. This information is on our website. I'm going to give you here in a few slides some QR codes, URLs, things that you can use to crosswalk your own entity structure, see if you might uh, be eligible for a project like this. Program funding over the years uh, for this particular program has been very stable. Um, Staff at NIFA, we don't generally discuss uh, budgets or program funding levels, but we did want to provide to you as an audience uh, just a picture of what this has looked like over time for our agency. Um, It's been uh, very, very stable, actually. There's some dips early that you'll see. This is showing from 2007 to 2023, current times, on the far right. Uh, the dip you see in the early years on this screen was really related to the um, types of funding. Usually, this program is funded annually. Uh, we have to get these awards out every year, like clockwork. In that particular circumstance, we had two years to get that project done. But really exciting, and what, I, what we want to highlight on this particular slide is what happened in 2022. And you can use the, the QR code there at the top if you want to read uh, the press release around this topic. But uh, last year, we were, NIFA was awarded an additional $10 million through the American Rescue Plan Act to bolster USDA's food nu- nutrition security efforts and promote self-reliance of communities. And so, we used those funds within the community grant, uh, the Community Foods Project program, to fund an additional 29 awards. Um, We found those projects from meritorious projects that applied in FY 2022. And so we were able to expand the cohort um, quite exponentially (laughs) that year. Uh, We're really excited. Um, Those grantees are now getting off the ground and really digging in with their communities. So we're, we're very, very proud of the work they're doing. And this is same information represented in a slightly different way, but you can see um, across the US, CFP has had a broad reach. This is showing from 2007 again to 2022, where in the United States our projects have, have existed. And it's not visible on this side, but we are also very proud that Puerto Rico and the American Samoa are represented in the Community Foods Project Program. Um, over the years, over the year shown here, North Dakota, Indiana, and West Virginia are the only states that have not received funding. The other 47 um, have been involved, at least in some way, with the Community Foods Grant Project. Here are the grant resources that I promised you. So three QR codes leading you three different places, um, all of them highly valuable. You can find our CFP landing page on that first QR code. That's going to share much more about the, the program itself, its history. Um, it's going to link to the RFA when it becomes available for 2024. As I mentioned, we're in the thick of it for 23, so that application process is closed, but um, it will be reopened at some point this fall for 2024 applications. And in addition to the CFP, uh, Request for application. If you use the second QR code, you're going to find a link to all of NIFA's uh, RFAs or a calendar that will try to project out when those RFAs are going to come out. So you might find other programs uh, within our larger portfolio that are of interest to you and your organization. And if you're new, we just uh, saw in Menti that many of you at least have not participated in CFP in the past. If you're new to grant writing in general, if this is something that you're interested in uh, getting into, that third QR code is of wonderful interest uh, to you. It's going to be a grant resource. So you know how do you get your feet wet in this really? sometimes difficult um, situation of putting together a grant application for the first time so some resources that nifa has put together uh, to ensure that you can be as as successful on that on that first attempt as you as you can because we love to see new applicants all the time it makes us so happy um, when we see folks coming in uh, for the very first time we like our returning applicants too don't get me wrong all right, so enough about uh, NIFA. We are just, again, so, so happy and so thankful that we were able to, to invite just one of the grantees. Like I mentioned before, we have many, many, um, so this is no act of, of favoritism by any kind, um, but some wonderful examples of what they're doing out in the community. I think that will really bring to life what this program is all about. So I'm gonna turn it over.
2: Thank you so much, Beth. Thank you, Lydia. Hi, everyone. I'm Ailey Kent. I am um, one of two representatives here from the International Rescue Committee. Uh, Eugenia will be speaking in a minute. But uh, yeah, we're really excited to share a bit about um, how we have partnered with the USDA and NIFA for several years at this point to um to support our programs and support some of the great work going on in the communities where we're working. So, um, if you haven't already heard about the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, um, it's been around for almost 50 years at this point. Um, but it's uh, we work internationally or a global humanitarian aid organization that works primarily in in conflict zones um, and also. Um, helping displaced populations all over the world. Um, In the United States, our focus is on helping newly resettled refugees as well as lots of other new Americans, asylum seekers, um, immigrants, and also their communities where they live. And so um, we work in about uh, almost 40 cities at this point in the U.S. So um, here's a map of the different... Uh, the different cities that IRC works in, and so uh, Eugenia and I help support a program called New Roots, uh, which is which works in all these places where you see the little leaves. Uh, we don't have New Roots programs in every one of IRC's offices, but we're working on it. Um, but uh, New Roots, the program really began in about 2006 as an effort to connect refugees to their agricultural roots. Um, there were specifically a group of Somali Bantu women in San Diego who said, you know, we, you know, they were coming to some job job readiness, job training classes and said, you know, we're farmers. Um, where, we'd love to grow food you know we want to show our children um, what our cultural heritage is you know who where does the food come from around here can we grow food and they actually ended up breaking ground at the high school where these women's a lot of their um their children were going to school. And so that was the very first garden that IRC helped get started. And um, and then soon after that, uh, IRC was able to partner with actually the Department of Transportation in San Diego. So we're going to start building all these partners up here. Um, to basically acquire some land, access to about two acres of land, where lots of people then said, "You know, yes, like let's let's all farm let's grow food." And so they were able to take that model, and that is now sort of replicated in various iterations in many parts of the country. So at this point, um, IRC uh, supports supports our clients. Um, in a whole range of food access and food security programs, um, ranging from emergency food distribution efforts um, to, like I said, gardening, but also farmer training programs and and market programs in in communities. Um, So, I mean, I I just, we wanted to highlight just this, the sort of the three-legged stool of food security. I'm sure a lot of you here have thought a lot about this, right? What goes into a person being food secure? Um, so we recognize those three things as being, a, you know, the availability of food in in a community or in some kind of proximity, right? Access to that food financially and otherwise, um, and know, and knowing how to use it, the utilization, um, and being able to use it, uh, and. So, you know, we recognize that you can't really do nutrition education with limited resource or poor communities without addressing access and affordability. You have to kind of do all three. Um, And so it really requires that we take sort of a multidimensional, multifaceted approach to to working with food in these, with with the populations that that we serve. And so, um, and, and also, you know, it can be more about, income and education, right? There's things like transportation. There's things like uh, just having kitchen tools um, and availability of a kitchen to actually cook food, so. um, Yeah, so I'll talk, I I have just three examples here of some different programs that, that IRC has started with the help of CFP funding. Um, and they take they take different forms. And so we, we chose three that that we thought um, exemplified this kind of range of, of programs. So um, actually one of the very first CFP projects that IRC received was for um, our Salt Lake City program, um, our New Roots program out there, where there were a lot of people gardening and a lot of people that said, hey, we want to market our food. We want to make some money from this. Um, and meanwhile, you know, a whole community of people that didn't have access to culturally relevant food, to food that they recognized, to fresh food. Um, And so, um, the CFP project played a huge role in in the start of the Sunnyvale Farmers Market, um, which is in the the community of Sunnyvale in Salt Lake City. And so, you know, it, it was it really helped, it really helped get that program from being a couple of sort of farm stands and one-off sales to being a true market. And to this day, or at this point, there are I think 14 or 15 different independent you know, independent farmer tables at that market. Um, it's wildly popular. There is a food pantry that also comes and does distribution at that market. Uh, they have all kinds of community events. It is, they, the, the city is actually invested in that park where the market stands so that it's more interesting for families to bring their children. The children can play in the playground, while parents shop. Um, it used to just be a bit of a dust bowl. And so there's been just a lot of collective impact, like, on this one space. Um, so you know, it's, it starts with food, and it's still very much about food, but it, it, it grows to being something more emergent um, as well. And yeah, and to get there, there was, you know, uh, I think, actually a big player. I, I did want to mention uh, I have a couple acronyms here. The FMMP is the Farmer's Market Nutrition Program, which is a really, really important program um, that helps uh, families who receive WIC and also seniors to get extra money to shop at Farmer's Market, basically specifically to spend at Farmer's Markets on fresh fruits and vegetables, um, and also um, making these markets available to Snap Shoppers by offering um, double up food bucks. They have lots of different names now in states, uh, across the states, but there's often a SNAP, a, a match program, a one-to-one match program that farmers markets can can get access to for people that come and use their, their SNAP dollars at the market. So it basically helps stretch people's um, SNAP dollars twice as far as they, as they would have otherwise, um, which makes a huge difference to people who are shopping on a limited budget, as well as the farmers allowing the farmers to make the money they need to make at that market. And so we've really, it's, they've been critical, critical pieces of the puzzle of making um, farmers markets in these lower income communities possible and making them thrive um, to help meet those things in the middle. Another uh, example of a community food project it was in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so this was a place where uh, there wasn 't necessarily a market that was needed, although now they do have a market there, but they have been able to develop a community food hub, so a place where people can can come and grow food, can come and learn about food. So they have a whole educational space there. They have a, actually a whole job readiness program on site now where um, um, it's sort of a, a land and agriculture based um, program where people who have agricultural backgrounds can come and sort of do farming and food programming but also gain some job skills that are transferable to other, um, to other locations um, or other. I guess other jobs, um, not necessarily just agriculture, and so they were able to access a lot. Again, working with a local, um, a local landowner. Um, there are local businesses that have events in the space. Uh, there's a local school that brings kids by, and they do various programming there. So it's been. It's also on a transit line. So it's like again thinking about these different pieces that have that have had to come together. Um, to make these spaces possible, but yeah, so now there's a there's a community kitchen there. They do um, nutrition workshops again. SNAP use and education, helping people to you know sign up for SNAP again. There's sort of lots of different things that are happening in this space related to food and nutrition. Um, and then the third example that I wanted to use actually is one of these one of these programs that just got started last year with some of that extra funding. Um, is in Oakland, California. This has another uh, flavor, I guess. It's working with with the school district um, of two newcomer high schools in um, in the East Bay and the and students are basically playing a huge role in getting more food access into their community. So the students are not only learning about food in you know through their school programs and after school programs, but they are um, you know help they're partnering with a food bank that does a food distribution at the school using the schools again as a, as a hub of of community activity around food. Um, families are going there anyway to you know meet their students Um, Students are going there anyway, so let's make this place a place where people can then access food. Um, you know, lear, learn about different ways to use it. Um, the students, also a big piece of their programming is a lot of culinary education. Um, so learning about ways to use maybe foods that they're not as familiar with, ways to cook in more healthy manners. Um, and then also just sharing a lot about their own cultural heritage, learning from, from elders in their community as well about how to, um, or just some of the, some of the cultural practices that they may not have otherwise been familiar with um but yeah i mean some of the big collaborators are you know the you know Al- alameda county food bank um and the school system and just again some of these other players that you know come to the table you know you use sort of food as this as this uh catalyst and it can bring a lot of different people to the table um, i'm gonna switch it over to eugenia who's gonna give the other side of my rosy picture that I just painted. <laughs>
3: all
4: right. I'm a short person. I need a short mic. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, all right, so speaking about the challenges. Mic drop, literally, right? <laughs> Comic timing. OK, challenges. Um, there's different types of challenges that exist, right, with, uh, with uh, implementing these types of programs with so many different players. There's contextual challenges. There's practical implementation challenges. We had COVID in the middle of all of this, right? Um, so, I mean, just examples of you know some of the challenges and then also how we face those challenges is one recurring challenge is land tenure for us and for our clients. Um, you know, land access is a huge challenge for newcomers here. Uh, becoming a farmer is a, it's very challenging in, in this country. Um, IRC does not own land, right, so we have um, contracts with, with, with parks. We have uh, public land. We have private land. Often it's a year-to-year contract, which can be cut off at any time, right, so there's always this kind of foundation of instability with land ownership and land access that's you know, underlying all of that. So we've we've worked through, you know, we we try to build strong partnerships uh, with the folks that we rent land from, and we try to work on contracts that give us flexibility and a little bit of more time to pivot if land is to be withdrawn. Um, But that is certainly uh, an issue. Site management for our our farmers, um, for where our farmers are growing their food. We have some lots that are really, you know, multi-acre farms that are really large. Um, We are in some land that, you know, has some is prone to occasional flooding. Right, there's some infrastructural issues that we also have to deal with. So, um, working through that can can sometimes be challenging. It is very time-consuming to maintain land. So, we try to, one, you know, we rely a lot on volunteers, on community support. Um, We have our staff base that obviously puts in a lot of hours for maintaining and solving these types of problems when they occur. Um, We also try to, um, as much as possible, you know, provide leadership and opportunities for our clients who are farming and gardening with us to take on those roles as well. Um, Transportation in, in many of the places where we have land is also an issue, you know, finding the right balance between, you know, where can we find land that's available and where do our clients live, right, so kind of finding those connections and in some cities, you know, it might be one or two locations and in places like Denver, you know, it's all spread out and there's many different actors and a network of, uh, of urban plots where we might have, you know, four four plots here and six plots in this other part of the city. So every city has its own kind of layout for that and, um, and its own contextual challenges. Um, some some challenges from some successful realities, and when we do have very productive farmers, one of the challenges that we're now facing is that they need to store produce on site, um, you know, before they sell to farmers' market. Um, and so, having uh, solar-powered coolers that are big enough to store all their produce for long enough that they can sell it off—that's also an issue. Um, and I think also just finding a balance between we want to make sure that everything that we do promotes leadership, that uh, promotes transferable skill building, right? And sometimes those activities are more time consuming. So finding ways to compensate people for their valuable time, right? If we are doing participatory evaluation, for example, or, or if we're doing training of trainers, right? We are requiring people to not only be farming, but we're asking them to come in and participate in extended you know, uh, group activities. So how do we balance that? You know, obviously, we're building their skills, but we also want to make sure we're compensating them for their time um, during, during that, d- the duration of their skill building. Um, one of the challenges of, of of this particular funding stream, as well, you know, as others other grants as well, that that have this match requirement, right? Um, sometimes it's 50%, sometimes it's 25%. That is that can be valid, very challenging sometimes. I think um, we, as a larger organization, we found ways to meet that match, right? It's not always through um, private funding. It's you can count um, volunteer hours. Um, you can count um, Land uh, land value for that challenging if you're if you're on park land um, but if you're on private land that's something that you can count towards your match but that certainly is a hurdle for many of our grassroots partners to access this particular funding stream um, so that is something that we definitely you know we try to build capacity with our partners to do this and to also capacity within our own offices because our new roots programs as you saw are really different. Some of them have been around for, for a decade, others are just starting up, like our Denver program is just starting up and barely has any funding at this point. So for them, putting in an application, meeting the match, that was complicated. right? So there's a lot of capacity building that needs to, to be done to be able to, to do so. Now the three key ingredients for, for a successful community food project, in our experience, has been partnerships, cultural humility, and building community capacity. And all of these things, of course, are interlinked. So in terms of um, partners, we have a wide array of partners. Each partnership network looks different in every location, in every city where New Roots operates. But it is critically important, specifically for the Community Food Projects grant, right? You need to prove that you have strong partnerships and that partners are involved in the, de- the design of the project when you're submitting your grant. Um, and, you know, partners can look very different. It can be about partnering with SNAP-Ed, who's going to come in and do nutrition for us, right, with, with our clients. It can be about working with a local mosque, or a food bank, or a high school. Um, it could be about directly getting letters of support from our youth food justice leaders, right They are also critical partners in our projects. Um, it can be about Department of Health, right and, and finding ways to collaborate on, for example, having the CFP grant support our farmers markets and our urban growers, and then the Department of Health might bring in their VeGRX grant that they might have as well, right, so that we can bring in more, more people from a different demographic to our farmer's markets, that they can also access food through this through this other avenue, um, right, so it's, it's kind of a puzzle, and you have to figure out locally and contextually what are the best pieces. Um, and for IRC as well, you know, we have offices, as we mentioned, in so many different cities, but it's, it's not about us always being the key implementer, it's about us finding our strengths and finding those other pieces with the partners that are operating in that community and that bring that strength to the project. Um, cultural humility is key. You know, we work with new American populations. Um, you know, we work with people from Many, many countries uh, who have come here, you know, they may have just newly arrived, they may have been here for 10 years. Um, We work with their community counterparts, the people that, you know, that welcome them into their community. So recognizing and celebrating the existing skills and knowledge in those communities is key for any intervention. But we also want to make sure that it is whatever we are doing, any kind of outreach or implementation is accessible to everyone, right? So we try to use approaches that utilize plain language that are linguistically accessible. We do work with many populations that are low literacy and low numeracy. So we always have to take that into account. Um, And building community buy-in is key at every point of the way. Um, We want to always use strength-based approaches I think this is key especially, well, for everything, but for nutrition education, right? Um, I think it's very important to adapt the resources that we have, um, uh, best, you know, guidelines, and also not be coming in assuming things. A lot of the new arriving populations actually come in with very, obviously, very rich food traditions. They value fresh fruits and vegetables, and their biggest barrier to accessing them is not lack of knowledge, but it's lack of financial means or the fact that they're living in a food desert, right? The food is just not available or recognizable to them. So that is definitely key. Yeah, and building community capacity, right? We talked about training of trainers. So, um, you know, providing opportunities and platforms to for for the clients that we work with, where, wherever they may be, you know, wherever they have come from, whatever their experience might be, to not be looking back at the past trauma that they may have endured, but to celebrate the strengths, the knowledge, and the leadership that they have within. Um, we try to build in transferable job skills into pretty much every implementation that we do. It can be with the youth food justice leaders. It can be with uh, farmers and growers, right? Farming for them, for the most part, is about income patching, right? They are doing many other things in their lives to bring in income. So we want to make sure we support their English skills, their financial literacy, their ability to navigate USDA resources and extension agents, if that is new to them. so and we want to really build on, um, on all of the strengths to, so that our projects are not top-down, but really are bottom-up. All right, so on that note, if you want to learn more about New Roots, you can QR scan that or just look us up. We're going to do some skill building. So I will invite um, those tables that aren't full, or those tables that are a little bit thin in terms of how many people are there to please join other tables. We want to have a full table. You will see we have um, dot stickers at each and every table. Make sure you grab some if you're moving. So go ahead and join a table. All right, if you're moving tables, make sure to grab the dot stickers with you from your table, you will need them. (laughs) I promise you will learn something (laughs) from the skill building exercise. All right, so you will notice you have a case study at your table you can take a look at that and you have some dot stickers. So we're going to spend uh, 15 minutes looking at the scenarios and discussing them very quickly. We're going to take a vote and we're gonna do some data analysis and discussion. So I invite you to read the scenario that is on your table. And as you're reading it, you're gonna have to pick a role. You're going to become someone within this role play, this community, you're gonna put on their hat Right, you can see the options listed on your, on your role play. And as that person, right, in that role, you're going to have to make some decisions about uh, this amazing opportunity that your community is facing, either with a farmer's market or with a community garden. We have two scenarios at play here. Please designate a volunteer to capture notes when you're discussing. finished reading your scenario please raise your hand so I know okay if you finished reading your scenario raise your hand okay all right just maybe one or two more minutes for those catching up okay for those who have finished reading you you need to pick Now that you've finished reading this scenario, you need to pick the role in your community, right? Each, each color represents a role. And you can see them defined on your scenario paper. So pick who you are. Pick your dots. Now this room is actually divided in a sneaky way into two different scenarios. So if you have the scenario, of the community garden, so it's described on your paper that you're voting on options in the community garden. Once you're ready and you have your correct color stickers for your community role, you go and you vote at this table here. You will place one sticker per decision, sorry, two stickers per, per your top decision and you have two different options laying here on the table. And if you're voting for a farmer's market option, it's at that table over there, right? And you have two stickers of the same color, depending on your role, and you're going to vote at that table over there for farmer's market. Oh, yes. And the roles, you can pick whatever role you want. It doesn't have to be who you are, right? Pick pick someone you're not. Pick a restaurant owner if you're not a restaurant owner. Okay, if you're ready to vote, please go ahead and take your stickers and you get two votes per sheet of paper. Community gardens over here, farmers markets over here. The polls have opened. Please cast a vote. Do you want my jacket (laughs) back? Okay, once you have voted, take a look at the results. Take a look at how your community is voting. They're so loud.
2: (laughs) So what we're We do that. they're seeing it amongst themselves, yep, right? yep. yep. Okay. All right, so if everyone has voted, has anyone not voted? People voted, you guys voted? You're on your way, okay, good. <sighs> okay, so we're getting the last bits of data up on our two different scenarios here. Jeannie wants to know who won, so she's going to come look. And so just, you know, you had some time to discuss what your perspective, you know, might want in your scenario. Um, take, just take a look. Take a look at the data on these posters and talk about the trends you see. Yeah, you might start to notice there are certain color clusters and areas or just overall dominance of one of one choice or two choices. Or not. Okay, you know, I'm going to go ask so if anybody wants to talk about the uh-huh. time is it? So, uh, we What time are we supposed so to we have? to end at 2.35. So
4: okay, okay, 15
0: minutes.
2: Does anyone want to, so we had two different scenarios. We had this community garden scenario option over here, and then the farmer's market option on this side of the room. Um, Who would like to share some of your observations from what you're seeing in the data?
3: What I see is um, a fairly even division about the activity choices between nine and 12 in each of the five different options, which suggests to me that um, different people wearing different hats, you know, will all come and they'll have different interests. And won't, you won't have a natural consensus when you just invite, quote unquote, the, the, the diverse community. Uh, which suggests to me you might want to think carefully about who you invite to this meeting next time. (laughs)
2: Nice. Anyone else? Other observations? How about from this side of the room? For the farmer's market. What do you notice?
5: What we notice Can you guys hear me? Yeah, okay, what we notice is the time of the day doesn't work because we all have different needs and the schedule. Some people have their kids, so there is no, the time works for them, it doesn't work for the the, the person. You were what, what was yours? She has the car. Yeah, yeah. mine mine was like uh, household, no kids. So then my time doesn't work for her. He was a restaurant owner, doesn't work. So, and that is what happens all the time. Like it's very hard to adjust. somebody have to sacrifice. It's very hard to put everybody please It's very challenging. Thank you observation any other
2: observations people see they want to comment on or that you saw or discussed at your tables I'll come back there
6: (laughs) I'm Larry and where I come from they do not give me a mic Okay, at the extension, I'm the dirt guy, so I do gardens. And actually, this scenario, we've done several times, and we've been able to put gardens in parking lots, and we've met every one of those groups' needs. We were able to position them in a way where it didn't take up a car parking spot. We had it set up to where some days the seniors was in it, some days the kids were in it. So I think if you have a scenario like that and you can just get people to sit down at the table and have a calm conversation and show some different scenarios, you can pretty much pull off whatever you want. But we have a lot of parking lot gardens.
2: Yeah. It's great to hear. Yeah, so what kinds of things could you learn from this type of process in your own communities? What, I mean, how might you start to, like, how could you apply this type of um, sort of community voting process? Any of you talk about that? So I think one thing is listening to each other and why what's important to them is important to them and thinking, oh, because we did this at our table, it's like, oh, well, maybe I could live with that or that makes sense. I have That could help both of us.
7: We talked a lot at our table about tiering it, like having a tiered approach where everything doesn't happen at once. That, you know, maybe we start with an orchard or and some structures, but not necessarily the garden plots until we figure out like how that would work, how that would be the most beneficial, and then then move on from there. So doing it in stage, like a stage approach um, to see how things kind of progress. So that was kind of our idea when we were discussing it. What other kinds of things could you
2: learn from this type of process? I see something. Similar to everyone else, the the value of working together, but also by coming together, you see the multiple ways in which community members can benefit from this if you have their voice at the table, because you're building it in. Uh, can I be a devil's advocate and ask uh, the group what they think? Um, no, I like this. It's really fun, and um, I think it's great for the community. I, I think of it like a, from an equity lens. I wonder, um, like I was looking at the roles, and I was the restaurant owner, but when I look at a low-income neighborhood, a resident from a low-income neighborhood, they're going to have um, challenges that other people don't. Realize disabilities that are unknown. And so, the question is like, for those that have done it before, any thoughts about how do we prioritize those that are marginalized or those that don't have those resources that others can access? That's a great question. Anyone want to take that?
7: I was just going to say, I I think you have to have them at the table, and it may be that you begin with just the community members, but then asking if they would be willing to come to the, the larger community discussion. But I think you have to give them voice.
2: I guess I was thinking similarly how important it is, you don't know where people are coming from until you hear them, and then listen hard to what they're saying. Another thing with dealing with diversity is, is to make sure you have resources for those folks. To, obviously, the location is accessible. If needed, you have materials in their
8: language, etc. someone who can speak to them. But then I think the point of just having the community at the table without experts to intimidate them is really
2: important, just hear their voice.
9: My question is for those of you who have done this: Is how logistically do you bring the community to a table to do something like this? Like, is it social media? Like, and how do you make sure that you get the like impoverished, diverse, disabled community to share their voices?
3: <laughs> okay.
5: I'm Habiba Nora, and I'm from Utah, <laughs> and I work refugee. So the best way and the best strategy to help the community to bring first, you have to have a good contact with their leaders. To know their leaders, you have to know who are your people, who live there, who is affecting all these change you're trying to do. So knowing that and getting their leaders and bringing all the table and everybody have a voice and speak. And what you're trying to do is something that they all can benefit. And when they all listen and everybody bring their issue to the table, like when we were discussing, everybody has their own issue. So, but what we're trying to do is something good for us. When Then maybe there will be a sacrifice, and they will become decision makers. And that program will go through, and I will have a voice and solution. That's my idea. Thank you. Thank you.
10: Thank you. You know, something interesting for me with this activity is that I'm trying to retrain myself to go into the community looking for what's needed. And for this activity, um, we kind of have listed out needed scenarios, right? We're going to put a sticker here. So I guess before doing this activity, you might want to have a discussion to find out what should be on the list for the stickers, right? Um, and I guess during this activity, if you have one that the structure is already there, you might want to leave the room for those new discussions. Because that's what, if you're saying to bring people to the table, you know, and then their ideas that they have is not really listed there, then it could almost be, you know, a negative effect, in my opinion. That's a really good point.
2: I'm gonna come over here.
10: Okay, so I want to say, looking at the community, and what we haven't said, our acknowledge our is the time it takes, because it's not what we want. We want you to have a community garden and you to have one, because I saw the, the parking lot, the vacant lot in your community. Did you ask me what I want to do with that, what I see it as? Is it a walking path for us to get from point A to point B, and you put a garden in there, and the first thing we do is put a fence around it? Did you ask the community what they wanted for their space? That's number one, because we come in as the expert, E on my chest and I'm the expert and I'm gonna pull back my jacket and show it as opposed to talk to me about what you want. What, what is this space? How does it work for you? Because it doesn't matter until you care about them what you care about and it takes i was at a presentation and it was admitted by one of us how much time it takes to work in the community and do we give ourselves that time because it's very very important and to have conversations because what gives us away in community and we're talking about leaving the room is the words that we use to talk to people and how we talk to people and sometimes it's good to learn the words that work so it just takes time and acknowledging that we have to show up a lot of places. If it's a winter coat giveaway because I want to start my garden in the spring, you gotta be there. And so it's, it's just the time. So thank you for letting me ramble on. That
1: wasn't a ramble at all.
8: I was just gonna say that um, my food bank has a has an urban farm and at the farm, and at the farm we have um, garden plots um, for Um, lots of um, new immigrants, primarily from like Nepal and Burma. And um, we do have that key contact um, that was mentioned over there, the person who's really uh, the connection between the community um, who largely don't speak English um, and our organization. But um, his English isn't that good, um, so for anything that is more than informal, like gardening, farming time at the farm, we always make sure that there's a translator for each language, because you're not going to get the conversation um, that you need. Um, if y- y- you, can, you can invite people, you can even have the people show up, but if they don't feel like they can communicate or understand what's being asked, um, you're not going to get the open conversation that you really need. And that would go for anything that would go for sign language, translation, um, um, interpreter, um, or anything uh, like that. And I think the other thing I would just note was in the scenario for the, the garden um it said that the organizations that were bringing the community together were the local urban gardening nonprofit several ethnic diaspora organizations and youth focused gardening club so those are those capital e experts but they also do sound like they are Of the community and serving the community so hopefully they are um, really in touch with the like hopefully those are those key organizations that know how to reach into the community and get the community members to attend and that they're not just showing up and saying oh yeah we we know the community we represent the community no they're actually bringing the community members into the meeting to have a conversation because they sound like the right organizations but They shouldn't just be speaking for the people, um, like on behalf of the people. Hopefully they're actually making those contacts and having them voice for themselves as much as possible.
2: So a few more hands back here.
11: Um, I think one thing I think about when bringing community to the table is also uh, making sure um, to compensate people for their time as well. Um, I think that's really important from an equity point of view um, and especially like as a, like me starting out, um, that's personally helped me as well. Um, so I think, yeah.
9: Hey, y'all. My name's Kate. I'm from NC State and I love all of this. Thank you very much. Um, one thing that I think kind of looking back upstream in addition to looking downstream, is that our leadership, right? Like everyone that's in this room, our leaders, we have to kind of work to change the minds of like, so for example, I work with cooperative extension, which means that my agents are not just responsive to me as a program leader, but also to like community extension directors and county directors and district directors. And they're saying, well, this program isn't necessary here or whatever, right? So like we have to afford our agents, the people that want to go out and spend the time in the communities, the opportunity to do that, right? Like their time and energy it's like it's not valued unless you're getting a check or you're counting the beans or you know and this kind of capacity building is really hard to measure and so we kind of have to change that shift or have that mindset shift that capacity building there is value here in this space and building those relationships instead of just counting the dots sorry that's okay
7: by the way that rhymed That was very good um, so I'm really interested in this concept, and I think Gabby, is that, is that your name? Yes. Okay, Gabby uh, mentioned, which is um, something I've briefly looked at. But it's uh, called participatory democracy and participatory budgeting. It was used, uh, participatory uh, budgeting was used in Brazil to... Um, focus on what the community wanted and what they did was they paid community members to come sit at the table to make these decisions and in Brazil they were having an issue with child or infant mortality so the community said we want to focus on infant mortality and what they saw in the study was that it shifted infant mortality it got better like so it seems like just in some of the little nuggets I've read that it works and when I was at ASNA um, one of the state agencies for for SNAP-ED mentioned that they were considering doing participatory budgeting um, to see what the com- who the community thought should get the SNAP-ED funds. So I think that, and I also want to say too is like in the and working in. Um, governments and, and attending government meetings they're normally at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon and people cannot attend those meetings so we just need to be mindful of time and we also kept cap- capacity and then also paying pay people to sit at the table there's nothing wrong with that and you can have a more diverse group that way um, to to really find out what the community wants
2: there's so much knowledge in this room and I think that the yeah this whole piece around I, I, I just I'm I'm thinking just more about just these community food projects. It's like, yeah, like not necessarily coming to it with like, oh, food's going to be the solution, right? Asking first this piece about humility, you know, making and making sure like the participatory nature comes up when you're trying to involve more people. Like, how can we continue as experts, as leaders, to try to take a back seat and and give you know and and give that space um, for for people to really articulate what they're looking for.
6: I promise I won't raise my hand again. Have you ever heard the phrase, too many chefs in the kitchen ruins the dinner? Okay, you can also think, uh, we had a, a group I was working with. Uh, it was uh, handicapped teens and adults. Uh, we, ate, we put gardens on their facilities. They were close by. Then we asked them what else they'd like to see. Well, they really wanted a walking trail, okay? So I said, well, which direction do you wanna walk? Well, we wanna walk into the downtown area. This particular town has a downtown area and it goes down to a waterfront. So then we talked to that group. Then we started talking to individual merchants along the trail, not a big group together, just walked in the door. Would you sponsor a pot out in front of your building? All I need you to do is water it every other day. We'll weed it, put a sign in it, take care of it, promote it. Okay, And we kept getting these gardens. So we got all these merchants to come on board. At the end of the walk was a restaurant. Oh, no, I don't want a pot. I'll give you the entire backyard of my restaurant. I'll pay for everything if you grow herbs and lettuces for me for my garden. Okay, so now the walk starts at the shelter and it's gonna end up, we had a little snag foo. I lost my chef at that restaurant, but we're still working on this project. So sometimes you can have a big project, but start it with a snowball effect and not necessarily get a big group at the table. But when you're done, we had half the community involved, all thinking it was a great idea, and they're all willing to participate. So sometimes you don't need that big group at the table. One little meeting with one group can snowball into a really big project.
2: All right. So yeah, so hopefully this was one opportunity for you to see one potential you know, method for engaging a community in a decision-making process. Um, I think there was a lot of good conversations that happened around, yeah, some of the, some of the flaws, some of the things you want to watch out for, what, what are the conversations that have to happen first, you know, um, so uh, thank you all for, for participating in that and considering how it might work for you or, or not, or some other process. Back to Brianna. Yeah.
11: So thank you again, everyone. Um we do have another MENTI survey. Give me one second.
4: Yep, here we go. Okay. We do
11: appreciate your feedback. So just... Yes. So please log back into MENTI and just share with us um in two words what has resonated with you today. Um, and we will have those results up for you. Capacity building, I see equity, people's voices, ask others. Um, Discussions, reflective, active listening, I like that. Community voice, community engagement, humility, partnerships, absolutely, representation matters. Else do I see? Just keep Ash. I see unity, engaged, compensate participants. I see experiences, flexibility, empathy. That's a really good one. Inclusion. Just keep coming in. Having a voice. Get creative. Absolutely. Different points of view. Being involved. Okay, great. We certainly appreciate all of this feedback, and, and I'm excited to know that something resonated with you today. Um, so right now, I'm going to hand it over to my colleague Lydia to touch on just a few more slides before we adjourn.
0: Thank you, Brianna. Wonderful. Now, if I could have introduced you to community foods projects, this would not have done it justice. What you just did in 30 minutes, is the work that, and what you discussed, and what you talked about and contributed, is part of what Community Foods Foods Projects, it's a longer word than that, is about. Um, And the projects that come from this are just amazing. Like what you you all heard from IRC, but many, many others. We actually have one of our other grantees here, um, Hugh Joseph, do you want to put your hand up so that people can come to you when we talk about TAs and the technical assistance uh, grant is with uh, that sector uh, of New England, and Joseph is um, um, Dr. Joseph Hugh is a is a PD for that, and he we will talk more about that. If you, if you look up the Community Foods Project, so I just want to say thank you. you. You just made a really rich discussion even more beautiful by all the things that you said today. I wanted to just anchor our program in, um, by noting that it does support the national strategy on hunger, nutrition, and health. And you can see that in the goals of community foods projects, which is to improve food access and affordability, integrate nutrition and health, and empower all consumers to make and have access to healthy choices. So this program does support um, the the White House Conference goals to end hunger. And not to bore you any further uh, around this, but you know, um, when it comes to improving food access and affordability, as you've heard from our grantees here, you know, increasing access to local and regional food systems uh, f- through f- local, and local and regional food systems, and funding training and equipment purchases that the, this program does that investing in the. The school nutrition workforce and expanding nutrition education for children. Um, so um, wanted to finish with those t- few slides, but also um, wanted to ask you to, you know, ask any questions of us. I think we are run out of time. We have two minutes, but if you have a burning question, we have uh, time for a question. But what. NIFA team will do, as well as our IRC partners, is stay around if you do also have questions. I know we run a little bit um, late on our schedule. Any question? I think the discussion did it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, My life is enriched by you having been in this session. So thank you.
11: Hi, folks.
7: Hi, folks. Before you head out, I just wanted to um, let you all know that um, we wanna thank USDA for um, their session today and we'll be honoring the Undersecretary um, uh Stacy Dean at, of the USDA at our plenary session at 5.30, um, which will be focused on changing food policy and uh, through produce prescription programs. So please make sure you attend that session at 5.30 in Regency A, um, but uh, where we're gonna be honoring um, USDA and the Under Secretary. So thank you so much.
5: Thank you.
3: Yeah. You it back. Girl, you think you got it? Back.